What's up, guys? I'm Scott Sturman, and I'm joined by Matt Deitch, and this is episode 37 of the Midwest Angler Podcast. Uh, today, we got a really cool episode with Garrett Zvere uh, from Slab Seeker Guide Service up in central Minnesota. Garrett guides uh, panfish and, and all species down in central Minnesota, and he also goes up to the tributaries on Lake Superior and guides uh, steelhead fishing. Uh, we're going to get right to him. Hey, Garrett, you there, man? Yeah, I'm here. All right, Garrett. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, first off, uh, you know, you, you are a very experienced panfish angler uh, up in central Minnesota. Uh, you've been in, in Fisherman uh, Panfish Guide. Your writings have been in Angling Buzz, Midwest Outdoors, Outdoors Weekly, Great Lakes Angler, and you've been on multiple uh, TV shows. Uh, but long before that, tell us about how you got your started in, or your start in fishing. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, you good bet. to have you. Is uh, is uh, probably on traditional as it is. My mom actually got me really into fishing. My dad worked a lot. My mom really loved to fish, so she got me into fishing at a, a pretty young age. Her and I would go fish all the time. Uh, and she passed away in 2017, but I I have to credit her for my passion for fishing because that was something just we always did growing up. What was like when you guys would go out? What was like your target species, or were you just kind of going out to go fishing and whatever bit bit? You know, I guess it really started with panfish, um, northerns, walleyes, but it uh, quickly turned to, to Lake Superior steelhead and the tributaries. My parents and I lived, and I grew up about a mile from one of the biggest runs of steelhead on the North Shore of Lake Superior, and so. Uh, my mom is a you know a real passionate steelheader always, and she grew up on the North Shore in two harbors, and and uh, she got me into that at a pretty early age. And I guess I kind of took it to another level. I really became obsessed with steelheading and figuring out steelhead and spending time on the rivers. And actually, my dad used to own a pizza place in two harbors. It was uh, Due North Pizza. It's still there. He sold it now, but and uh, I, I would you know. Uh, ride my four-wheeler to the river and spend every waking hour on the river when the fish were there from the middle of March, end of March to about June 1st. And uh, I, I just really, you know, kind of embraced it and loved it and wanted to be out there and really on the pulse of what those fish were doing every day. And I guess, you know, I kind of got a reputation for it around town. And so people would actually come into my dad's pizza place and try to get him to have me take them fishing <laughs> and at the time I, you know i didn't think anything of it we just did it we just take them out fishing and kind of show them how it works and get them set up and um and then after a while i thought you know there's a lot of people get paid for this i should try to probably get something <laughs> yeah. out of it you know <laughs> have them buy a couple extra pizzas for my dad or yeah, uh, you know as my equipment keeps getting more and more beat up it'd be nice to be able to keep my equipment in order at least you know by taking people out and showing them how to do this all the time and so I guess uh, that kind of evolved into what it is today. And now I spend, you know, several months a year up there uh, guiding steelhead uh, on the on the North Shore of Lake Superior. And then I spend the rest of my time uh, guiding here in central Minnesota, mostly for panfish is what people call me for. Uh, but I do a lot of, I've been doing a lot of walleye trips lately because the bite's been really good. Uh, do a ton of bass trips for tourists. Uh, some people even call me to catch pike. So kind of random whatever but i guess panfish has always been my specialty and what people really come here for that's a world-class fishery in central minnesota you talked a little bit about in fishermen and they made a 
where I live, central Minnesota, Ottertail Lakes country, and and uh, you know, north of Alexandria, one of the top ten places in the country to come and catch a giant bluegill. They're not like those four pound red ear sunfish like you catch on Lake Havasu and you see. But uh, you know, pure strain bluegills, we regularly catch fish that are a pound five to a pound eight nine ounces. Wow. And I've had them on my boat as big as a pound twelve, a pound thirteen ounces, just just shy of two pounds. That's crazy. Because <laughs> I, I mean, I love I love bluegill fishing and, and that I mean, we we've got West Lake Okaboji down here and, and I mean that's known as a good bluegill place, but that, that Fantastic. I mean that is not even close we, to the same. Yeah, I was gonna say we don't see many over a pound down here no. a lot of the times. They're getting there though. So did you, you know, and they're, they're some of the most finicky bluegills I ever fished in my life. So before we had uh, my son, my wife and I used to fish uh, competitive ice fishing tournaments, and we traveled all over and fished uh, Team Extreme and NAIFC. And they always had this recycled fish, um, hard water classic on Lake Okaboji every year. And it was a charity tournament, but a pretty prestigious tournament. I mean, it's if, if you ever do any competitive ice fishing, it's more about the hardware than the money. Right. Um, and it supported a good cause. Um, Recycled Fish, you know, at the time was kind of the leading conservation organization for ice fishing. It just uh, put a lot of money in. Like, they provided all of those uh, fish weigh-in bags for the Brainerd JCs tournament. Oh, okay. Just so people, you know, wouldn't throw their fish on the ice and freeze yep. them solid. They could actually put them in a bag, weigh them, and then release the fish after, and it went back in the lake and so it was getting wasted. Um you know, and did a bunch of, like, lake cleanup type events and stuff like this. So they used to have a hard water classic on Lake Okoboji. And, well, it was a fun event. We stayed at that church camp in Emerson Bay. And oh, yeah. yeah. The, the first day we got out there, I remember thinking, you know, this isn't going to be that difficult. Well, I, you know, drilled a few holes and found a whole bunch of fish. And you'd uh, have these big fish come in. And, I mean, some of them had to have been a pound. They, they looked big. I don't know that I ever got one to bite. Right. But, then, you know, you'd see these monsters come into your hole. It's gin clear water. And they nudge your your tungsten jig with their nose, and it mm-hmm. swing like a pendulum, and they bump it again, and then they just turn and swim off, and it's like, wow, he never ate it; he just bumped it a couple of times. Yeah, we, we we know what that. Yeah, is we about. call that the old Okaboji backpedal right there. <laughs> <laughs> they come so flying those are some in. Some of the most finicky bluegills I think I've ever encountered in my life. I'm like, you know, uh, one guy threw a rod and broke, and he was so frustrated <laughs> watching these fish during the tournament. <laughs> like broke a hundred dollar Thorn Brothers rod because he threw it halfway across the lake. This frustrated with these fish he couldn't get to bite it was, just a, it was a fun event but uh you know the guys that won that did come in with monster bags of fish you know i think uh the year i the last year i fished it rod wooten had the biggest fish of the tournament it was a pound three or something oh, like nice. that i mean yeah. a big mod like an 11 incher yeah, and um this i don't know how year... we got that thing to bite i think <laughs> i had some of those come in but i never got one to eat it all right yeah, this last year we really had a good uh, a good class of fish. I mean, there were people that were you know catching tens, and yeah. uh, you know never. I, I I don't know. I've never caught an eleven, but there were people that were catching tens out on West Okaboji. So uh, who knows? Maybe this year's the year. But in um, there, you know, one thing we noticed there too is you couldn't put a real heavy pounding action on your jig. You know, something with right. a lot of vibration. You had to kind of swim it real nice. You know, mm-hmm. they call it the Okaboji swim or whatever. So your spring bobber just waves a little bit. And the size of the tungsten I thought was pretty crazy too. You know, where I live, three, four millimeter stuff is kind of your day in, day out bread and butter. But I mean, we use some tiny, uh, you know, one and a half millimeter stuff with a hole in the head and a single year old larva. Yep. Yeah, it's you got to be finessing them 
here. That alter, like you said, that gin clear water just plays tricks on you. <laughs> right. Now, I remember there was an older guy that lived, uh, or I don't know if he lived there, but he had a permanent house in the bay, and he had to have been, you know, in his 80s, and he had a wood house out there, the only wood house in Little Emerson where he had that tournament. And there was fish just stacked around his permanent structure. Um, but, but he was out there. You know, we had kind of crept over there to take a look when he wasn't there during the week pretty fishing. Tournament, he was in his house, you know, and so nobody wanted to get near it. But, <laughs> you know, there was like a specific weed bed. It was big as my desk, and he had his wood house on it. <laughs> right. That spot produced some killer fish, too, but, you know, you didn't want to get near with him in there. How did you end up down in central Minnesota for, for, to, uh, for the guiding or... Uh, no, I actually moved here to go to uh, St. Cloud State University, met okay. my wife, and uh, bought a house and kind of started hanging out after we, you know, kind of discovered these bluegills and uh, posted some social media pictures, and then everybody wanted to go do that, and uh, we uh, started started taking people out and doing that. I, I, at one point, had somebody working for me for a brief period, and uh, I'm not really a uh, manager that's not really my strong suit life and so i kind of went back to just being a one-man operation right i'm trying to keep my schedule full yep so then is that kind of how like bluegills just kind of became kind of i would say your passion a little bit you know that's the one you really seems to like you focus on and like to really target it's just i don't know something about those big bluegills they're just beautiful fish they kind of bring you back to an easier time and make you remember being a kid again it's just a fun fish to go out there and catch they fight really hard for their size i feel like you know i've always told people i think if they grew to 10 pounds i don't think you'd ever land one <laughs> you'd need a fighting belt and 30 pound braid or something you know no doubt um those big you, circles now you're a big advocate for uh selective harvest and uh panfish conservation tell us a little bit about your efforts in that yeah i was kind of telling you guys before the break so i was always uh you know like emailing my local biologist for the dnr and and uh giving him suggestions on boy this lake has got some big giant fish but a lot of them are going home in buckets in the winter and you know guys are keeping all these fish be sure nice we could do something to protect some of these genetics in here and and uh you know i I got to know him on a first name basis just because i always had ideas and wanted to bounce things off of them and kind of wanted to learn about you know why why these lakes are only good for a little while and then all of a sudden the, the fish seem to get smaller and you got to go kind of chase the next best lake and the next best thing. And, uh, you know, I did that for a long time. Well, the DNR here in Minnesota decided they were going to make a citizen panfish council. And what they wanted us to do is they wanted to uh, create a council of people that could kind of help provide them the tools to manage our panfish in Minnesota. And they wanted to pick people from different interest groups. You know, I'm a guide, which probably helped me get on there. Um, you know, and the other thing is, is, I was pretty vocal about what we need to do to protect our panfish here, so that's probably how I got selected. Um, but some people are resort owners, some people are just recreational anglers, and they tried to pick different different people from different parts of the state with different interests in panfish and, uh, you know, kind of have a, a group of people together that could kind of brainstorm and run things off each other about what we can do to, to keep our panfishing in Minnesota really special and what it is. So I've been doing that uh, for the last two years. I've been on the Panfish Council. And what we really wanted to do as a group is we wanted to really lower the limit of, of bluegills in Minnesota. We worked really hard on it. And I think everybody in the group 
kind of wanted to see a slot limit with bluegills. What's really important is genetics and also just keeping big males in a population that'll chase smaller males off the spawning bed so they don't spawn at too young of an age. Because a lot of the data has shown that when bluegills spawn at too young of an age, they have no reason genetically to grow big anymore. And so instead of focusing on growth, they just focus on trying to spawn. Um, when they're not allowed to be on those spawning beds and the big males push them off, they have to biologically grow big to uh, complete their life cycle and, and have their offspring. And and so those big males are super important to a population. So I think almost everybody in the Panfish Council really wanted to see like a one over nine inches per day or one over 10 inches per day with, you know, even if it stayed at 20 bluegills like it is, you know, statewide. But the DNR took that kind of off the table for us. They said that wasn't in the toolkit. They didn't want people to have to measure um, measure panfish just because they don't want to make it confusing. They want to be, you know, make it a, a thing that people can go do and it's easy, um, which I understand, and not create another barrier to going fishing. Mm-hmm. So we tried to propose like a 10-fish limit and a 15-fish limit, and we finally got the final word here last March that they're not going to lower the limit statewide on bluegrass. So it was kind of a, kind of a, 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 you know, a negative thing, a down thing for those of us that really wanted to see this and worked hard at it. But what they did say is we could uh, look to get some special regulations on certain fisheries here that are known to have giant fish and maybe put just a few lakes aside for the future and have some lakes that have some five fish limits or some 10 fish limits. Because the data has really shown that less harvest really keeps that size good. Um, but, um, yeah, we've, we've been working hard on that. The other thing we've been tasked with, and that's why I was excited when you guys said you'd have me on, is just trying to kind of spread the message. Just so anglers kind of on their own say, you know, this one's pretty big. Let's keep a bunch of these 8-inchers and, you know, that 10, that 10-and-a-half-incher. That's a pretty special fish. Uh, just, you know, and I always tell people in my boat, just like my son will probably never be a 7-foot center in the NBA, it's the same with those big bluegills. If you take out all those big centers... Pretty soon you're not going to have those genetics in the lake and you can actually do irreversible damage. Right. Now, what do you consider a big bluegill? Like, I mean, nine and above? Well, I guess when you take out a group on your guide trips, what do you release and what do you keep? You know, in my boat, the the uh, in, in self-imposed slot limit, and I'm real clear with this via email when people call me to book trips, is nine inches. We don't have any bluegills in my boat that are over nine inches long. I actually worked pretty closely with Eric Frank from Angler's Touch Taxidermy, and he's an awesome replica bluegill artist. So if people want to fish for the wall, we'll get the proper measurements, and Eric's really kind of trained me and into my head to get these girth measurements right so he can get you know the right mold and get their fish right. And so we can get them a replica that will look better than the actual fish and last longer. You know, the skin won't deteriorate. Just like when you walk into a bar, do you ever see any good taxidermy in a bar? <laughs> well, it depends what <laughs> night, time of night it is. Like my wife would have thrown that away if it was in the living room, you know? It looks good at 8. It, lo- or it looks bad at 8. It looks really good at 12. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You know, whereas replicas don't do that. And, right. uh, you know, and, and then the obvious benefit is just being able to let that fish go so it can pass on the genetics. And you can have those caliber fish in, in the future. Just just like when you think of Florida strain largemouth bass, they're they're significantly different um, genetically than our Minnesota largemouth bass. And, and genetically, those 
giant bluegills are, are really superior and by taking out those good genetics you can really do damage that could never be repaired right and you know and so those fish are just so important for a population so yeah i'm always really clear you know a lot of my customers want to catch you know some big trophy bluegills but we take good quality photos get good quality measurements if they want to do a replica but i think the growing trend is even just to have good pictures of your fish people want something they can put on their facebook and on their instagram and oh, even sure. getting replicas and mounts and stuff i think is less popular than it was even three four years ago yeah now along with that you know talking about nine inches and above and releasing them you know with the selective harvest thing just because you know the limit is 20 doesn't mean a person needs to keep 20 for it to be a successful day i mean my Agreed. Wife... that's kind of funny i just actually was talking to uh scott magnitude about that we talked to him about him a little bit he works for the dnr he talked about that too and you know and i had said that one of the first things i always do when we start catching fish in the morning on my boat is i always ask people like realistically how many fish do you guys really want for dinner and, uh, you know, I'll hear some jokes like, well, are you cleaning them or are we cleaning them? I'm like, well, either <laughs> yeah. way, I mean, I can clean them, but what are we, what are we talking about? I mean, there's three of you guys. I mean, 60 is crazy. It's, what are you thinking? And, you know, nobody ever says like, oh, it's 60, you know, the full Minnesota limit. Like, I, don't, I can't think of anybody all summer that said that. Uh, usually people really, you know, kind of think about it and they're like, you know, we like to have a fish Friday night when we get back to the cabin. If we had, you know, 15 nice ones between the three of us, you know, that'd be pretty good fish fry and you know maybe maybe we'd keep 20 so we can take a few home too you know right. between three guys yeah i'm like perfect right so i kind of tally their fish throughout the day and i'm like so we got to 20 and just let everything else go huh and they're like yep that sounds good to us and that's a real normal conversation in my boat because when you think about keeping you know, 60 bluegills for three guys uh you know it's it's that's pretty crazy do you think social media has had a a terrible influence like everybody wants to post that picture with a limit you know i think it's changing um in a way i think social media has had a bad influence and here's where i think it has so a lot of the lakes that you know we get on in minnesota uh, i don't ever advertise whatever lake i got these fish out on social media um but but some people do and you know and it's it's one thing to tell a few people about it or to take some customers there, but to tell, you know, you don't even know what the reach is sometimes. So that's when you get on yeah. some of those forums on Facebook, I mean, you could reach, reach thousands of people. And so I think that is something that it's not necessarily bad. I mean, I'm always been a believer that these are Minnesota public resources and everybody should be able to go out and catch fish and enjoy them. But, but I do think, you know, it's definitely affected some fisheries before just by putting the word out on a kind of a smaller, fragile body of water. Yeah, and then, you know, in half the battle, like, we enjoy is going out to a lake that you don't know much about, but you know that there could be big fish in there, and just figuring it out and trying to find those fish for yourself instead of just going online and be like, oh, everybody's here, that's where we're going to go. That's where we're right, exactly. And so I think in that sense, social media has kind of had some, you know, some uh, some bad implications, but as far as, you know, taking photos of fishing and releasing them, I, I think it's probably had a positive impact. In fact, I think a lot of people I get in my boat, especially younger people that want to fish and catch a big bluegill, that's all they really want is a couple, you know, shots for social media for their yeah. Instagram accounts. And, uh, you know, they're not looking to to, to take home a, a nice green pail full of fillets whatsoever. I mean, maybe a meal of fish for that day and a couple Instagram photos is, is really all they're looking for. And it seems like those photos of fish laid out on tables – are kind of getting less and less, I, I feel like. Yeah, you know, I have a good friend who manages one of the biggest bluegill pages on Facebook, and uh, 
they were so bad when you started it like eight, nine years ago that it was just always a full cleaning table with them all laid out perfectly organized and then the knife in there to show the, you know, how big they were. They were bigger than a nine-inch fillet knife. And, and he actually it took away that privilege on there so you can't share photos on there anymore. you got to send them to him and he's got to approve it before. Because it was just sad to see. I mean, you know, you'd see 80, 100 fish piled up and big giant ones. Um, but I think I'm seeing less of that. I mean, most people want a, a nice shot on the water holding a big fish that looks like a hubcap and <laughs> not laid out on a cleaning table next to a beer can or, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. I, I think catch and release in all really is gaining a whole lot more popularity. Uh, and, and it might be the social media deal, you know, that you get to show a picture of, of it online and, you know, your buddies know that it actually happened. You don't need to bring it back to the house to show them and, yeah, hopefully, exactly. Hopefully, it's something think, that's really catching on. And I think uh, you know, I, and I love to eat bluegills. I mean, that's probably the reason I originally started fishing bluegills is how you know sweet the fillets are and how crispy they get. But well, I think it's just all about being responsible, right? right yeah. And I, I think that's the growing trend as people realize like we don't need to come out and take a limit every day, and we definitely don't need to take uh, you know a limit every time we go out. We can kind of limit our harvest rather than always harvesting our limit every time we go out whereas i think you know and not to pick on one group but i think the older generation like our parents generation i mean that's kind of how they gauge success was if they had a limit in the box at the end of the day that was a good day otherwise well we didn't get all of them oh, yeah, i mean i can i can remember growing up we'd go over to okaboji every year and yeah coming home with five gallon pails full of bluegills and you know that's just what you did you never really thought of you know, measuring them and what size was which and everything like that. But, you know, up until like the last, you know, about eight years ago, because of social media, it's like, okay, I started to realize that, okay, we needed to start protecting this resource if we want to keep, you know, getting bigger fish and nicer fish and just a healthier fishery. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I remember, you know, and I haven't always been this good either. I learned this from the air of my ways. I remember back in high school, we'd go out with my buddies and we'd kind of play fish poker. You know, we always, I've always been an uh, advocate of like to fish outside, not even use a house really, like a bucket and pop a whole bunch of holes and move quickly and stay on top of good fishing all day. And so I'd go out with three buddies and we all kind of fished the same style. We didn't have a lot of gear on us. We just, you know, ripped holes and kind of moved quickly. And then at the end of the day, you'd kind of play fish poker. So you'd pull, hey, check out this one. You'd pull a big monster out of your pocket. You know? <laughs> and then you'd say, oh, wait, I got one better than that. You'd dig your hound in there and look at this one. You know, and uh, and that stuff is terrible, terrible for lakes. And we always put the biggest ones in our bucket because those are the ones you wanted to show at the end of the day. And, right. You know, now I'm always the one who's going to have the smallest fish in my bucket at the end of the day because those big photo ones, I'll take a quick snap of them and put them right back in the, in the hole for somebody else to enjoy and to pass on those. Yeah. So okay. So here's a question for you: Your go-to bluegill setup, you know, rod, reel, line, and your favorite lure, or whatever you use. In the summer or the winter? Well, uh, let's go winter. Winter. Yeah. Boy, I was a Saint Croix rods advocate for years, and I really like those uh, those ultralights with that spring bobber where you could push it in and out, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of balance it with the jig. Um. And kind of a funny story is uh, I was approached by Chris Granrud about JT rods, and I didn't really know much about them. And I said, ah, I've never used that. You know, I kind of got a system. I use these. I can adjust the spring based on the tungsten I'm using. 
And so I said, you know, I'm not really interested. That's, that's not really my thing. So I thanks. Well, I, I walked by at a sports show. I was working for Ice Team for Clam at a sports show in Blaine, and I walked by the JT Rods booth, and I, they had kind of a crowd around these JT Rods with this night and all spring bobber. And I'm like, I better go check that thing out. Well, I held that thing, and I'm like, this is the nicest pinfish rod I think I've ever seen. So I uh, talked to Joe a little bit and um, bought one, and I went and fished this thing, and I'm like, this is incredible. And so I really fell in love with that JT Panhandler, that 24-inch. Um, the, just the balance in your hand that night and all spring, how well it holds up in super cold temps, how you can really read bites on there and it doesn't get kind of limp and bent out of shape like the ones I was using before. And um, So I really like that. I'm a two-pound line guy. And so um, I always run two-pound tests in the winter. I feel like with, with one, you know, it's tough to get a good hook set. A lot of times you break them off on the hook set or you, and you can't land your pike to get your tungsten jigs back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those expensive tungsten jigs you have down there. Um, and so I've, I've, you know, really been a two-pound guy. I feel like you can land bass and pike on them too. And big crappies, you know, break them off. Um, and then, you know, like three-millimeter tungsten, I guess probably my go-to of all times jig-wise is a Fisca three-millimeter in that school bus yellow color. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever use that. But that's been about. Yeah. I've caught more big fish on that three millimeter fisca and school bus yellow than than anything. I use a lot of Northland gill getters, like a you know, year round, like a ten or a twelve Northland gill getter, just a lead jig. Yep. Um because they they they're flat on top, so they show up really good on your flasher. They get kind of a darting action when you pound on them, so they'll kind of dart around in your hole because it's it's almost completely flat if you look at it. And I like your larva. I'm a big spikes guy. You know, I've I've gotten more into plastic in the last three, four years, but I was probably slow to catch on to the plastics revolution compared to most people. And still to this day, I always have spikes on me, yeah. even when we're fishing plastic. I still don't fish with plastics. <laughs> if wax worms aren't working, well, then I'm just not catching fish that day, but I'm going wax worms all in. <laughs> it's just, you know, with those bluegills in the winter, you know, I always tell people that croppings are dumb. I mean, you can catch crappies on plastic all day, but if you ever spend any time watching, like you guys do, you guys are experts at that, I'm sure, fishing on a local boat. But if you spend time watching crappies, they don't even look. They come in with that big mouth, take a deep breath, and inhale the jig from four inches away. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know, and so those things, in my opinion, those things are dumb. Um, you, you know, use whatever. Uh, but bluegills are different. If you spend a lot of time watching them, they'll come up and inspect that thing, and they'll bump it. And they'll touch it with the outside of their mouth, but not open their mouth. And yep. Yep. I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen all that. And, it, and it's brutal. Whereas uh, something about those spikes, you know, there's that little scent sack in the back of the worm, you know, the flat part of the worm, the ural larva. And when you puncture that, that clear liquid comes out. And that seems to just seal the deal day in and day out. So I'm, I buy them like from Vados and they ship them to my house. It looks like I'm getting a, it looks like the worst package in the world. It's like a big duct taped. <laughs> yeah, you don't want plastic. those getting out in the UPS truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, plastic bag in my life. It's like, what in the world did you order? It looks mm. like it's dying and it smells terrible. I'm like, oh, yeah, I need those. Give me those. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I buy them 2,000 at a time, sent to my house, because we, we burn a lot of them in the winter. And then keep them in those bait bucks so they don't freeze in your pocket. And, and I think I probably always have four or five bait bucks on me just to have fresh. You bet fresh red spikes at all times now 
to go away from bluegill uh with your slab seekers guide service you also guide up uh on lake superior uh with the tributaries for steelhead correct yeah, absolutely yeah steelhead was always my before i had a driver's license i'd take my four-wheeler from my dad's house and drive down there and i'd see all these guys from the cities and they'd look and they'd be like you drove that all the way here and i'm like well yeah i didn't come from the cities and they'd laugh you know? <laughs> <laughs> like i wouldn't have been able to take it on 494 but where i live yeah i never even went on grab i don't even run a black map you know <laughs> Now the, um, so yeah, I, I still spend a lot of time up there in the spring. I do the, the North shore from Duluth all the way up to Grand Marie and I kind of follow the migration based on where the, where the fish are up the North shore. Um, and that, that usually lasts, it starts around the, you know, this last year was really late, but historically it starts around the first day April and goes until the middle of May. This last year it started about the end of April and went well into June. It was just really a late start this spring. Um, and then in the fall, I go to the Brule River and I guide on the, the Brule River north of Superior in Wisconsin. Okay. We don't get a fall run of fish on the North Shore. So our fish on the North Shore of the Steelhead, they come out of Lake Superior for sometimes only a couple days or a week. They run up the rivers, they lay their eggs, and they head back out to Lake Superior. Uh, on the, the Brule, those fish are a little bit different. They run up in the fall, spend the whole winter in the river, and then drop back down in the spring to Lake Superior and lay their eggs in their way out. And that's how they get the term steelhead, correct? Uh, because they're migrating? Right, exactly. You know, when people argue from the West Coast that we don't have real steelhead here, because I'm not they're sure, supposed but whatever to... you want to call them, they're, they're big and mean and they fight pretty hard. Because... You know, guys on the West Coast will say to be a real steelhead, it has to touch the salt. Right. Oh, but, okay. uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, migratory rainbows, but they're, uh, they've been native in Lake Superior since around 1970, and they're big, mean fish in the... Uh, a pretty pretty fun opponent and light tackle. Yeah, we'll call them steelhead around here. The hippies out there in California can call them whatever they want. So. <laughs> this, is, this is the Midwest <laughs> Angler Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now, what does a day consist of? If if I would book a trip with you, what does the day consist of? You know, we typically start pretty early in the morning. I'm a big first light, first bite guy. And everybody has their theories on steelheading, but my theory on steelheading is that the fish move a lot at night. So these fish will come up from lower river or Lake Superior, wherever they may be, and they're going to move at night to another spot. Then on the Brule, you know, the biologist says they move somewhere around a mile and a half to two miles a day. So there's going to be pods of fish or groups of fish that are moving up that river at about the pace of a mile and a half to two miles a day. So I like to get into a spot that's a holding spot in the morning, you know, some bigger, deeper runs and holes. And get get first crack at those before people have had a chance to go through there. And um, so I'll typically meet customers at, you know, pretty early, 5 o'clock in the morning because we've got a drive and a long walk usually to get into where we're fishing. We'll get down there, get rods rigged up, tell some stories and some jokes, drink a whole bunch of coffee, and, uh, you know, try to try to get ready for, for uh, first light. Go through, drift some spots, kind of work that stretch of river until about noon. Then we usually have some lunch, kind of talk about an afternoon game plan and what we should do. In the afternoon, I tend to run and gun more and hunker down less. Um, you know, in my strategy of guiding is to kind of put the fish to bed at night, figure out where there's a group of fish, get myself in that vicinity or upstream where I think they're headed, kind of hunker down for the morning and get that water first before anybody's had a chance to really beat it up. 
uh, hook some fish, and then in the afternoon, kind of try to cover a big stretch of water. Like we might even cover uh, two or three miles. I'm trying to think. I had uh, a bunch of ladies out from uh, the Wisconsin Women's Fish Organization this past uh, spring on the Brule River, and they a lot of them had pedometers, and we kind of compared notes when we were out to eat later at the pizza place that night. Like, I can't believe how many miles I put on. <laughs> we walked four and a half miles, or you know, it's it's a it's it's a pretty fun active, and we can throttle that back too. I've had you know a variety of people who really want to get after, and we can cover a whole bunch of water. And I've had some older people who just kind of wanted to get into a spot, make some good drifts, and and uh, have more of a laid back day. So we can kind of tailor that too. But but it's all wading and fishing. Uh, you know, we can use fly rods, center pins, spinning gear, kind of whatever the person wants to do. Sometimes a combination. Tell us what a center pin is. You know, a center pin is just a big line-holding drum, kind of like the first fishing reels ever invented. It's just a big spool that holds line and revolves on a single center pin. The advantage to fishing out in a river is you can, when you're bobber fishing, you can throw a bobber out into the current, and it's going to slowly revolve the same speed as the current and let line out at the exact same speed the current is moving. So you can really cover a lot of water. Okay. I, and I knew it. I mean, it, it's it looks a lot like a fly rod, but but obviously there's something there that's different. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of having a drag system, you just have to use your your hands to fight the fish, which kind of adds to the excitement. There's no multiplier function on it, so when you get one crank in the handle, that's just one rotation of the mm. size of that spool. Right. So if it's a five inch spool, you get five inches every time you crank the handle, which kind of adds to the excitement of it too, the the hand to hand combat factor and fighting these big fish. What's your average size steelhead that you you usually catch up there? Like, like your yeah, average size to your the big North Shore, ones. I'd say on the Brule, the average in that twenty three to twenty four inch range. On the North Shore, the, the it's more like that twenty six, twenty seven inch range. Oh. Yeah, you know, the big ones are about 30 plus on the North Shore. Wow. I mean, we've seen them like 33 inches on the North Shore. So, like 30 the, inches pool, would be the... you'll see some 29s. Like, what's considered a real trophy? You know, kind of like walleye sizes, like 30s, kind of that magic mark. Okay. Now, you, know, I... you, see a, you see a 30, and that's something you'll always remember. Yeah. Now, I got to ask you, yesterday when I was kind of texting back and forth with you, I, I said to you, do you ever encounter any black bears? Uh, and you, and you said that you have, you know, I have not a whole bunch, but, uh, yeah, I have, we used to go in, uh, to the brule on the upper river at night and fish migratory browns. So starting like this time of year, the brown trail from Lake Superior are going to actually run up in the brule and spawn and they go way up above highway two, if you know where that is on the brule. And that's kind of their territory up there. And we used to go up there at night and we'd fish jitterbugs and floating rapalas and big mouse patterns on the fly rod and fish these browns. And the hours you want to keep for them is you want to find dark nights where the moon isn't out or you want to fish before the moon comes out. Because once that moon gets bright, they won't even eat. I mean, they're really a funny, nocturnal, picky fish. And I was back there fishing uh, browns one night at by myself at some ungodly hour you know it was saturday night or friday night i didn't have to get up and do anything in the morning so you know at one o'clock in the morning on a dark night i'm out fishing these browns back there by myself and i heard something splashing behind me and and it's always kind of a interesting trip back there anyway because you'll have deer that come out there's all these muskrats in the water 
So you'll be walking and all of a sudden there's a muskrat like right in between your legs practically. And you're like, whew, let <laughs> me get away from that guy, you know? <laughs> but I heard, uh, you know, I'm, I'm out there weighted up to my waist and I hear there's sticks breaking and it sounds like somebody's driving a truck through the woods behind me, you know? So at that point I like turn around and flip my headlamp on because I'm like, this is the most noise I've ever heard back here, you know? And, uh, I look behind me and I'm assuming it's just a deer that's going to pop out, but it was probably about a 200 pound black bear popped right out to get a drink and uh, didn't really know what I was. I don't, I don't necessarily think they see that good. I'm no bear expert, but, uh, and, and just continued to kind of walk out in the water right towards me. And so at that point I'm, I'm yelling at him like, Whoa, Whoa, Hey, 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 you know, like trying to get his attention, but at the same time, not, not tick him off. And uh, he finally stood up, got a look at me, and turned and barreled, barreled it out of there. But, yeah, that one was uh, not exactly what I was expecting. It was going to pop out. <laughs> so did you keep fishing? Yeah, I, I, I didn't leave. I, I moved down a little ways. I was like, I think I'm going to wait down here and kind of get out of his path in case he decides to come back. But, right. but I, I stuck it out. Wow. Yeah, I think no. the funniest thing I had seen back there at night, you know, not even funny, but kind of scary, is there were some guys back there in a canoe on the upper river, and uh, I think they had had a few barley pops, probably. <laughs> um, and I was back there waiting one night, and I heard just a horrible scream and uh, a bunch of splashing, and I thought, oh, man. And it, it continued on, and uh, one of the per- people was actually yelling, help. And uh, I wasn't in a canoe, so I couldn't get there super quick, but I reeled up and started to walk down there at a pretty good pace while these, these guys had flipped their canoe back there at night. And that it was, you know, about this time of year, but it's a spring-fed trout stream, so the water is pretty cold. It never gets above 65 degrees. So, you know, it's probably in that 50-some degree water. And so they were pretty cold and shaken up. But, uh, they had gotten loaded up back in their canoe and, Kind of got everything together by the time I had got there. I helped him pick up the half a dozen beer cans that were floating around their canoe. Yeah. And hopefully they, they make some better decisions in the future about right. going out there at night in that condition that they were in. But, but yeah, that, the night fishing is always an adventure. Up there. I believe it. I, there, There's no way I'd be out there where there's bears and wolves and lynx or whatever else you guys got up there. There's you know, no wolves way. are kind of a funny story. And so uh, the, the reels I use... I, I use these Daiwa reels that have an awesome drag system for these deal because they run and they fight really hard. But the bad part about these reels that I use is you got to have a screwdriver to switch them from right to left-handed. Yeah. So usually I send an email the night before and say, so what, what hand do you reel with? What, what hand are you? You know, and uh, for whatever reason, either I didn't or they didn't respond to me. So we got down to the spot in the morning and I get them their spinning reels and get everything rigged up for them. They're like, oh, that's on the wrong side. And we're probably a mile and a half from my truck. And I was like, no problem. I was like, just kick back. I'm going to run up to my truck and grab the screwdriver, and then I'll come back down and switch these rod handles for you. And it's still dark out, and they're like, yeah, no problem. And so rather than making them do the walk up the big hill, you know, because you're down in a canyon on the river, and it's a lot of exercise to get out of there, I'm like, I'll just let them relax and enjoy a beautiful night. I'll get the handles, you know, get the screwdriver, come back down, and get the rod handles fixed for them. So I walk back up to the truck, and I don't think much of it. Well, I get about halfway out, and I hear a pack of wolves howling. And they're pretty close, you know. Not the direction of my customers, but they're pretty close. And you can hear this pack goes on for a while. And, you know, one starts howling, and then there's like six howling. 
And uh, I just kept walking to the truck. I went and got the screwdriver. I get back down there, and they're, like, pissed at me. They're like, no one ever leave us here again. Those wolves are closed. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you didn't see them, did you? And they're like, no, but we could hear them. It was closed. So uh, I always warn people now, we might hear some wolves. I've never seen them. You know, the one thing about the wolves is they're pretty pretty elusive. I think all the time growing up, uh, up on the North Shore and stuff, I've, I've seen maybe three or four wolves in my whole life. It's just uh, you hear them a lot, but they're. Usually they don't want anything to do with you. Right, because the people that have seen them when they're on the riverbank aren't around anymore to tell you about it. We've seen seen some deer kills, uh, you know, down there on the river, but uh, I don't think they're killed from wolves. From what I've heard from, you know, my dad and some of the guys that have been around for a long time is uh, before those deer die, they tend to to gravitate towards the water. They think the water is going to heal them and make them feel better. Right, and so a lot of the deer that are sick throughout the winter gravitate towards the river and end up in there. Yep, that yeah. that is true. Yeah. When when we're tracking deer in the fall hunting, uh, we when 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 you run out of blood or whatever, you try to get to the nearest water source, and and normally you can find them. That's that's where they go. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And so, you know, from what I've heard, is most of those deer were seen in the river, and those bones and carcasses you're seeing in the spring are just natural deaths that yeah. the deer. You know, we did have some kind of funny this spring. I was down opening day in the Brule is, you know, kind of a big to do and a big celebration. So I don't guide it because there's so many people on the river. It's not like you can really move around or anything, but we got a spot. We like to fish kind of off the beating path. And it's always been the, the tradition that my nephew and my wife and I go since my wife and I have been together. And uh, so we get down there early and have a fire in the morning before it gets light out and fish. We were down there this year and we were drifting and, uh, these guys coming down the trail must have spooked a deer and it jumped into the river right in the hole that we're fishing and swam all the way down through the hole. I've never seen that in my life. But. Yeah, that I'm sure that was pretty exciting. <laughs> it was, yeah, not expecting it. And this deer comes up behind you 100 miles an hour and jumps Just right friend. in. You're like, what <laughs> in the world is going on here? <laughs> That's crazy. But, and, uh, but well, otherwise, you know, there's, you know, it's a. That's a, not a dangerous thing to do by any. You know, the, the thing you really got to be careful about is just high water. And, you know, that's why it's nice to have a guide your first time out is I can kind of advise you on the conditions. Um, you know, and I kind of know what's fishable as far as cubic feet per second. You can go on, there's a website, the, uh, the uh, I'm not sure who publishes it right now. I'd have to think, but there's a few websites that publish, like, how many cubic feet a, sec- a second per water is coming down the river. Right. And I can kind of tell you what's safe to wade and what you don't want to get get uh, caught up in. We we filmed an episode of Prairie Sportsman with with uh, Brett uh, Amundsen. I don't know if you know him. Last year, fishing the rivers on the North Shore where I grew up, and we had got into kind of an interesting situation. We were out in the morning and we got into a hole and we hooked a whole bunch of fish. And it started to rain about 10 a.m. And we decided we were going to go up a little bit farther. And I probably wouldn't have pushed it this much, but we're filming a TV show. We have a one-day allotted time frame to film this TV show. And you don't want to look like you know, you're not catching fish on this thing. Yeah. And so it started to rain, and we pushed our way upstream and made a couple of crosses. We got ourselves in like the middle of this river where we're halfway to the bottom where we started and halfway to the top. There's another place you can get out. Um and it just started raining harder and harder and harder. And the water kept getting higher and higher and higher. Well, I filmed it with my nephew, and him and I have been doing this for a long time, so we're pretty strong waders. 
But then we had two people that didn't wait a lot with us, a camera guy who had never waited a trout stream um, and had 300 pounds worth of camera gear on him. And then uh, the whole spread. And, uh, you know, we had to make some crosses that were pretty dicey on that one. And that's something I would have never pushed with a customer. But just filming that TV show, we uh, we had to kind of do what we could to get through that because we had one day to do this. But we... Everybody made it through. You know, the biggest risk was just dropping one of those expensive cameras into the river and having it float out to Lake Superior or uh, get some water damage that it was unusable. But we pulled it off and we caught a lot of fish. You know, the rain usually brings in a whole bunch of fresh fish from Lake Superior. That's kind of the trigger that brings them in is that that warm rain in the spring warms up the water temperature. And huh. No, I think we ended I... up kind of putting together a banner day. Yeah, I think I actually, I think that uh, episode's actually on YouTube, and I think I actually was just watching it here. <laughs> is is your nephew like Mac or Matt? Mac, yeah, that's my nephew. <laughs> yep, Mac, yeah. yep, yeah. I actually, me and my buddy were just watching that literally uh, hour ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Really nice. yeah. And if you notice, the water is—I mean, uh, I think it's very dirty. One of those crosses where I'm sitting on a rock on the other side where I had made it across, and Brett's about halfway, and he looks back at the camera guy like. You know, he's taking a deep breath. Like, yep. No, that's funny. But well, with with normal customers too, that that was kind of the the fear when we got done filming. It's like, how do you think it turned out? Do you help? Do you think it helped? Uh, you know, sell trips for you? I'm like, either that or it scared a lot of people. Together, <laughs> like, no, no. <laughs> but you know that we we would have never pushed it that hard under under normal circumstances with normal customers. It's just uh, right when you're what, when what you're happens doing... when. You got 24 hours to film a TV yep, show. Time Absolutely. Crunch. Yep. But, well, Garrett, we, we really do appreciate you swinging by. Uh, uh, appreciate you talking panfish, panfish conservation. We appreciate you talking steelhead on the North Shore. Um, before we let you go, uh, why don't you go ahead and plug your guide service. Uh, let people know how, how they can get a hold of you if they want to uh, do stuff like this. Absolutely. It's, uh, my website is slabseekerfishing.com. Dot com And my cell phone number is 320-428-5174. also have a Facebook page. It's facebook.com forward slash slab seeker fishing. Okay. And we'll, I'll also tag you, tag you in the post when we put this on our Facebook page and whatever. But uh, no, like I said, we really appreciate you swinging by. And uh, that I really found that interesting. Uh, you know, I always knew that you had to release, you know, nine inches or above or whatever, but I didn't realize that, that those big bulls were the ones that pushed off the smaller breeding stock. And, and I, I really found that interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and you know what uh, the biologists have, have all told us too, is that when those fish quit focusing on when they're able to spawn at a young age, they, they have no biological reason to try to be the big boy on the block anymore and focus on growth. And so if uh, you can keep those big fish to push those small ones off the bed, it'll it'll make all the fish in the population better because you're going to have to focus on growth to, uh, to to complete their life cycle and have their offspring. That's very cool. Oh, yeah. awesome. Thanks for having me on to do it. The DNR's kind of tasked us with uh, just spreading the message of conservation now and, uh, you know, finding avenues to do that is always kind of the trick. So thanks for having me on and letting me talk about that. Yeah, you bet. Hopefully it. we'll have you on again. If you ever make your way down to Okaboji, uh, hit us up. Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, thanks, guys. Have a great night. Yeah, right, you too. See ya. Bye. There he goes, Garrett. Garrett Zvere from Slab Seeker Guide Service. Uh, yeah, uh, way cool dude. Yeah, great interview. Glad that he could uh, talk with us tonight on the phone. And, you know, a lot of cool, interesting 
things that a lot of people don't realize, especially that with like the selective harvest with those bluegills about putting the big ones back and, you know, those seven to eight inch range ones or seven to like eight and a half, anything under nine are the ones that you really want to keep and let the big ones go. Right. You know, like he said, you know, it's kind of like they want to put all that energy into, you know, getting big instead of just breeding when they're small. I guess it's kind of, I mean, I guess it's like dudes at the gym. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you walk into the gym and all the dudes are little dudes at the same size you figure ah, i didn't gotta get you know that's all right this is all i gotta get bigger well if they're all big jack dudes it's like all right i need to get big and jack so. right <laughs> and i never thought of it that way but that makes a lot of sense uh no uh i i, I, w- I want to ask you matt so you're you're up there north shore of lake superior your guide just takes off to go back to the car and you start hearing wolves howl what are you doing well, uh, I'm getting on, uh, getting online and ordering a new pair of waders because <laughs> there ain't no cleaning those out. You might as well go new. Absolutely not. No oh. way. I would, I would be going bananas. I'm telling you what, I'm sitting back to back with everybody. You watch this way. I'm watching this way. Right. Grabbing some sticks or anything sharp nearby. Yep. Well, we got some cooler temps, Matt. You're back oh, in school. Man, yeah. Uh, uh, it's, it feels nice those cooler temps at night. The water temps are starting to drop, so you know fall fishing's going to be getting here. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. It, it uh, yeah, it, it's actually feeling like fall. I went and looked up when the first day of fall was, and it's not till the end of September. Right, but, it's like September I mean, 20th or something like that. Right. I mean, we're having highs in the 70s, lows in the. I mean, we it's got a couple nights into going into the 40s. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's feeling like fall, and and we had a late winter, so this was a pretty short summer. Yeah, and you know. It's nice because with the school starting and everything like that, everybody's starting to get busy with that stuff. It means the lakes are going to be less busy. So yep. on the weekends, you can get over there and hopefully the water's getting colder. So the pleasure boaters aren't all over the place. Yeah, and you, you don't want to go wakeboarding out there. In no, this cold it's, it's already too cold out there for wakeboarding. So don't go wakeboarding. Yeah, it's, it's done for the season. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, wakeboarding season's over. Cl- officially closed today. Yeah, this, uh, what is it, this Monday or this Sunday, dove season actually opens? Yeah. September early, 1st. Early goose season in Minnesota opens up on Sunday. So Crazy. Yeah, Crazy. I think early teal season opens up this weekend too. Down here? I think so. Is that so. right? It, yeah. it very well could be. So there's a lot of those things starting to open up. I mean, fall is here. Archery season opens up in South Dakota. September 1st, I'm pretty sure, on private ground. Right, uh, week already shot a, you know, Kyle Week. Yep. Yeah. Already shot an antelope. Did oh yeah, I've yeah, seen I've an, been seeing going. some antelope pictures online. So and I think September's the time for all these elk hunts and, yep. and everything else. Yep. So it's all it's getting here. But the thing is, is, you can't forget about that great fall fishing. I mean, these fish are going to start putting the feed bag on, and they're going to get fat and big. And if you want to catch a big trophy, something to put on the wall or get a replica to put on the wall, it's it's starting to get to be that time of the year. Speaking of fat, like footballs football season it's here too it is i started football practice this week and um, i can already tell in my throat and my voice from talking so loud not yelling just talking loud (laughs) right you got to talk to them yeah no uh speaking of football uh tonight as as we're recording tonight thursday night uh, as most of you guys are probably going to listen to it it's days past already uh university of minnesota gophers sdsu jackrabbits who you got oh i don't know Minnesota's supposed to be tough this year. They're supposed to have a pretty good team. They've had a few years now under P.J. Fleck. And, you know, SDSU, they're ranked high in the... FBS, right. Yeah, in the FCS series. And uh, 
but I've heard too that they're not as good as what their ranking says. So, oh yeah, I don't know. I, I want to say SDSU, but I'm going to go with Minnesota winning this one. It might, it's going to be a close game. It's going to be closer than what people think. Right. I th- I think Minnesota's actually favored by like 13 points or something like that. Not oh, really? that not that I'm betting on it, but uh, I did look it up beforehand <laughs> just because. Well, I knew we were going to talk about it, but uh, all right. So Who do you, you got? Eh. I, I think Minnesota will take it. You know, there, there's a part of me that's like, golly, just just beat them SDSU because I'm 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 a guy for the little guy. Not that I hate Minnesota and not that I like SDSU, but you know, just the underdogs. I, I'd like to see that. But I am an Iowa Hawkeye fan, and any loss to them, uh, you know, to Minnesota it, it hurts the right. Big Ten. You know, yeah, yeah. when Iowa turns around and beats minnesota down the road here yeah uh you know then then it doesn't look as good because well sdsu beat them too for our bowl for our hawkeye bowl chances we need minnesota to win (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm yeah i i don't don't know i think minnesota's gonna win i'll probably go for sdsu that's how i'll that's how i'll call it right but not not that i not that i hate minnesota because i truly don't but uh Iowa versus Miami of Ohio this uh, Saturday. I can't pick against the Hawkeyes. I mean, Hawkeyes are going to get them. As well they should. Right. How bad is it going to be? Is it going to be close or is it going to be bad? Uh, It's going to be in between there. (laughs) 21? 14? You know they never the Hawk, the Hawkeyes sometimes one? they as long I don't care if it's one as long as they beat them right. I mean hopefully they come out and I'm going to say 21. Good, good. That I I'd, I'd I'd be very happy with that. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for all you guys that uh, stuck with us over the football talk and uh, I don't know if we're going to keep talking about football every week. Probably not. But, no, we'll keep hey, talking fishing. Right, maybe it's, some it's, hunting. Right, it's our show, but we can talk about whatever the heck we want. That's and, the coolest part. And if you listen this long, we got you already. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, see you guys next week.